This is the second of two talks on the subject of the overflow of grace, unpacking some of what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter, the second letter to the Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. Paul was writing there to the church in Corinth in southern Greece, urging them to respond to the example of generous giving which the poorer Christians in Macedonia, a couple of hundred miles north of them, had demonstrated. When I spoke two weeks ago, we saw that extraordinary giving doesn't spring from our own naturally generous temperaments, but it is best understood as the overflow, the overflow of grace. As we truly grasp the extraordinary grace which God has abundantly poured out on us and allow that to overflow from our lives to others, our attitude to giving will be transformed from wanting to hold tightly to what we have to eager willingness to give. If we let what has been poured in also pour out, we'll experience a far more vibrant life than we would by holding on to it. And the key to finding freedom in doing that is to take the focus off our stuff, off our possessions, off our money, and to give ourselves unreservedly to God. If you weren't here last time I spoke, uh, you might want to watch or listen to that online because the two talks inform each other and they enrich each other. Today we're going to delve into chapter 9. In this chapter, Paul highlights the relationship between our response to God's grace and the amount of grace which will continue to flow into our lives. As we receive, the more we give, the more we receive. And here in chapter 9, he expands on one of the points we talked about last time, that grace radically affects our attitude. In chapter 8, Paul had talked about the eagerness and enthusiasm and readiness of the Corinthian Christians to give and the overflowing joy of the Macedonian Christians welling up in rich generosity. And Paul talks to us in chapter 9 about giving as a response to the grace that we've received, not under law, not rules or percentages, but uh, an invitation to generosity. Let's call generous giving fueled by grace, gracious giving. And so Paul touches here on the attitude of gracious giving. If you have a Bible, you might like to turn with me on your device to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to pick out a few verses here. First of all, verse 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give what you've decided in your heart to give, not just an emotional response to an appeal, but think carefully about it and make a decision and, uh, and follow through. But basically, he says, you decide. People ask the question, well, how much should I give to God? Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So it's all his. And in case we think we earned the part we have, Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 says this, you may say to yourself, my power and my strength, the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So essentially, nothing belongs to us in the first place. So the short answer to the question, how much should I give God, is all of it, everything we have, as we look at who actually owns it. 
Now, once that's established, then we can work out with the Lord how we should steward what essentially belongs to him. How much we should live on, how much we should part with. And Paul says, give what you've decided in your heart to give. Think about it. Make a deliberate choice. Not reluctantly. Don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. We're not under law and should and ought. We're beneficiaries of this economy of grace. Because of what Jesus has done, giving everything for us, we're freed to decide ourselves how generous a response we want to make to the grace which he has poured into our lives. Paul says, give what you've decided to give. You prayerfully think about how much. Not under compulsion. You're not under law. You're under grace. For God loves a cheerful giver. Last time I spoke, we talked about the attitude the Corinthians and others had to giving. And Paul uses words like enthusiasm, eager willingness. And here the word Paul uses, uses which is translated cheerful, is the Greek word heleron or heleros, from which we get the English word hilarious. God loves the attitude his followers have towards giving, which is to joyfully part with their resources. As we fill out our check, or fill out our standing order form, or make a donation online, or we give a gift to someone in need, or to a person on the mission field, or to an organization which is extending God's kingdom, God's desire is for our attitude to be one of overflowing, for the joy of giving to be hilarious. So much grace has flowed into our life that the overflow is not grudgingly given, but joyfully released from our grip. A mother gave her child a five pound note and a 50p piece. Sweetheart, the mother said, you can place either one in the offering plate. It's entirely up to you. As they were driving home, the mother asked the daughter what she had decided to give. Well, at first I was going to give the five pound note, said the daughter, but the man behind the pulpit said, God loves a cheerful giver. So I felt I would be much more cheerful if I gave the 50p instead. <laughs> now you might be thinking, it's challenging, isn't it? I, I can only cheerfully give maybe 1% of my income. Okay, give that. But are you willing to consider whether you're just dipping your toes in the flow of grace, and to ask the Lord to work on your heart and grow you in this area. And then Paul talks about the rewards of gracious giving in verse 8. If you're a cheerful giver, God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. That's three alls and an every. That's pretty inclusive. The New Century Version and the New Living Translation combined open up the meaning of this verse even more clearly. God can give you more blessings than you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. What is abundant blessing for? To become even wealthier and keep our giving at a minimum and enjoy the luxuries that we couldn't afford before? No, that doesn't align with the flow of grace principle of receiving and giving and receiving and giving. He says, there's be plenty left over to share with others. In verse 11, then he says, you will be made rich in every way. Great, going to be made rich, awesome. No, it's not a full stop then. 
so that you can be generous on every occasion. More grace poured into our lives, so more grace can be poured out of our lives. I heard a a story a couple of weeks ago about a couple here at Trent who found themselves struggling financially. Their small group leaders felt prompted by the Lord to support them, and the rest of the small group decided they also wanted to join in and help. And the response was just amazing, along with a whole variety of offers of practical support over 1,400 pounds was given to this couple over a four-month period. Following an offer of part-time work, the couple found themselves no longer in need, and they passed on what was left of the gift to another person they knew who was struggling financially. That's just beautiful. I am absolutely thrilled as the pastor of this church, together with my wife, to know that these things are happening. Money is moving around. People in need are being resourced by people who have plenty. And when that turns around, it's reciprocal and comes back. In my research, I read this quote, which captures the point well. The abundance of God's giving is not a green light to the accumulation of riches, but an invitation into the economy of receiving and giving, which is at the heart of the kingdom of God. Rich in every way so that you can be generous On every occasion, God will enable us to give more, whether that's giving directly to people in need, like we just talked about then, or giving to the church's work and ministry here or around the world. Paul illustrates this inflow and outflow of resources using an analogy which would have been very much a part of the experience of many of his original uh, readers in the agrarian culture of his day. Their livelihood, their economy, was centered around agriculture. So he unpacks an analogy that they would be very familiar with, the principle of sowing and reaping. While talk is, uh, Paul is talking specifically about money in these two chapters, the principles he outlines here are relevant to everything, everything we receive and everything that we give, whether that is care, or love, or service, or kindness, or encouragement, or anything else. And he uses here the analogy of seed. And so verse 10 tells us this. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. Just as God provides every farmer with literal seed to sow, which produces wheat from which to make bread. He provides money and other resources which we can choose to sow into his kingdom. And Paul essentially says, as you consider how much to give out of the money and resources which are entrusted to you, there's a principle I want to remind you of. And so here in verse 6, he says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Every farmer knows that the harvest is dependent on how much seed is sown. So he's got his field full of wheat. When it's ripe, he harvests it, brings it into his barn. And then he makes his first decision, which is how much will I sell and how much will I store? Then some months on in the spring, he plows the earth and he faces a second choice, which is as he looks at the amount of seed that he's got is how much do I keep and hold back to feed myself, feed my family? And how much do I sow? How much do I sow back 
into the field. A farmer hoarding his seed rather than sowing it might well do so out of fear, keeping just a load back, you know, to make absolutely sure there's going to be a constant supply of bread. And of course, the amount of wheat which grows is going to be directly proportional to the liberality of his sowing. Every farmer knows if he sows sparingly, he's going to have a small harvest. When you sow seed in the soil, it costs you at the time. But when you sow, it's not lost. It's invested. The more liberally we sow, the greater the crop is going to be. Giving in God's economy of grace is a grace-filled response to the seed provided by God. I've got all this seed entrusted to me by God. I could hoard it and eat it all and probably waste a fair bit in the process. Or I could live more modestly and I could set a larger amount aside to be sown, to be invested in a greater harvest down the road. So what Paul is talking about here is saying, sow and you'll reap. Sparingly, you'll get a sparing return and generously a generous return. And he's really basically saying exactly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. This is verse 38. Jesus said, give. He could reasonably have put a full stop there and just gone on to another subject. It's like in light of everything I've given you, you know, everything, just give. It's a natural response, but he doesn't. He just puts a comma in there. Give and it'll be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You decide the measure you use. And, you know, each of us is supplied with a, we're entrusted with a supply of wheat. Uh, God supplies our store of seed, it says there. And the amount will vary, of course, from person to person, the size of our pile of wheat, okay? But... We get to choose the measure we use to actually sow that seed. So in here, I have a measure. It's a very little measure. It actually holds just a few ounces. And uh, we have a choice which measure to use. We can sow sparingly or we can sow generously. So using this one is clearly going to be pretty sparing. And uh, I have a load of wood chips in here which represent wheat seed so here's my measure and I can sow a little bit you know kind of here and there and and so on a Sunday I can pop maybe a little bit in the offering basket if if I happen to have any cash in my pockets this day and if I happen to be in church I can sponsor my friend who's doing this charity run a few pence per mile I'll look at the form and say I don't want to be the like the bottom you know but but I don't want to don't want to be too extravagant so I'll just put a little bit a few pence a mile I'll sponsor him there I'll I'll look for the very very cheapest thing I can find to fill the van and so I'll sort that out and basically it's gone that's the measure and what am I doing here while I keep the vast majority of my store of seed safely back for me and my family what blessing am I positioning myself for well a harvest reflecting a tiny jugful, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Awesome. Not so awesome. Now, how about this measure? <laughs> a four and a half gallon bucket with which I can sow generously. So I'm going to set up a monthly standing order to the church, which goes out each month for 10% of my income. 
Now I've got the choice. Now, is it 10% of the net or is it 10% of the gross? Whatever. Let's make it the gross. Let's make it the gross. I'll give sacrificially on top of that when we have like special offerings for things like building projects. Give a load to building projects. And then there's DTI, this youth camp national thing, uh, to that offering. Give a load more there. And then there's, uh, you know, sometimes when we plant a church, we take a big special offering. I'll give a load there. And then we've got, um, you know, other needs around the world on our extravagant Sundays that we often do as well. I'm going to buy the most expensive item I can find to fulfill the van. Even a better quality item than the corresponding one, which is sitting at home in my house. Uh, I'll buy dinner for someone else in a restaurant. And then having got into a conversation with a waitress about her future that she's saving up for, I'm going to give her a tip which is a multiple of anything she could have expected. I'll carry cash with me, always sensitive to the possibility that I'll meet someone the Lord would like me to bless. This is fun. This is actually fun. There is joy in it. This is something of the hilarity of the joy of giving. And here's the thing. The Lord intends to bless my life with this measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, rather than the little jug. And it simply is my choice how I live. Which kind of life would you like to live? Consider people you know who just seem to have the blessing of God on their lives. They may not have financial abundance, but they are just so rich in so many ways, perhaps relationally. And they just seem to live with a contentment and a freedom and a joy which defies explanation. Think of someone like that. I think it's almost certain that they are generous people. And so there's the principle of multiplication. There's the dynamic of grace. We pour out from the grace God has showered upon us, and he responds by showering our life with even more grace. And we can't outgive him. He will always give us more than we sow. The blessing generous sowers receive is a principle which we find throughout the scriptures. Let's go back to Proverbs 11:25 for instance. A generous person will prosper Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Deuteronomy 15.10. Give generously. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Just this week, I was at a meeting and I was chatting with a couple of vineyard pastors from uh, the south of England. And they told me they've always lived in rented accommodation. And about a year ago, they started a savings account for a deposit on their first house. About a week after they'd opened this savings account, two people independently felt the Lord prompting them to give this couple a financial gift. Completely unrelated to housing, but they received these gifts and they thought, wow, what do we do? Let's put it in the bank account as the beginnings of this saving up for a deposit on a house. Now, in January this year, they attended the National Leaders Conference here in this room, and during which Susie Aldridge on the front row and Zeke Rink shared their vision for this huge expansion of the youth conference, Dreaming the Impossible. And uh, we took an offering at the conference to enable that to really take off really well-resourced. And then some of you will recall we then subsequently took an offering here in the church. This couple 
were actually in separate places during that meeting. And each of them independently felt the Lord asked them to give to this DTI offering and to give everything that they had in the savings account, to empty it for DTI. When they talked, they thought, oh no, we both think the same thing. And with their hearts pounding, they pressed send and they emptied that account. Three weeks ago, nine months after they'd emptied this savings account, they had a meal with some friends, friends who are not in their church and who they hadn't seen for a long time. And at the end of the meal, these friends said, we've been sitting on a check. It's to go towards a deposit for your home. And they handed them the check, which was exactly 10 times the amount that they had given. Awesome. And they were able to go back to the two people who made the original gifts and celebrate with them that they were part of their story. The seed that they had given had been sown into DTI and the Lord had multiplied it tenfold. Some of you have experiences like that. You know, you've given, the Lord has given you back perhaps a multiple of what you gave. But this is not a literal formula. I put my money in this slot machine, which is programmed to churn out at least as much money as I put in. That's not the way it is. Along with those in this church whose testimony is, I gave financially and God gave me more back, there are at least as many people in the church who have sacrificially given and not received any financial blessing in return. We don't give to get. We give in recognition of the grace that we have received from God, trusting God will look after us. But we may well have less rather than more money as a result. I think it's worth me saying that texts like the ones I've touched on this, uh, this morning have been used by some Christian teachers to create an expectation that if you're generous, and that usually means sowing into their ministry, you're guaranteed loads of money in return. That teaching, known as the prosperity gospel, is an aberration of the truth of Scripture rather brutally illustrated by this critical poster of a Mercedes sports car, and the caption reads, Prosperity. If this is not your third car, then you're not in God's will. The principle of sowing and reaping, which is entirely biblical, has, in my opinion, been abused. It's a great shame that a truth that God wants to bless those who are generous has been so terribly distorted. The response to when we see abuse of Scripture is not to reject the Scripture itself and the truth that it so evidently contains, but to reject the misuse of it. The truth is the Lord does bless those who give generously, but it's important to emphasize that the blessings reaped may or may not be financial, maybe in a hundred other ways, both in this life and indeed in the life to come. One of our church members wrote this, getting caught up in the grace of giving is something that I'm still working on and probably something I'll always be working on. But as I've pressed into the grace that God has for me and let that change my attitude towards giving, I've not only been blessed financially, emotionally, and spiritually, I've also grown closer to God in the process. On this journey of gracious giving, it feels like I'm not just receiving little gifts of blessing along the way, but with every step I take, I'm getting closer to Jesus. 
There is a domino effect in giving. When we really learn to give, it releases blessing in lots of other areas of our lives. We began two weeks ago at chapter 8, verse 1, which says this. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The penultimate sentence in these two chapters is like the first. Verse 14 of chapter 9, because of the surpassing grace God has given you. It's as though Paul is putting a pair of brackets around the two-chapter passage to emphasize his point. This is about the grace of God being poured into our lives and it overflowing as we allow that dynamic to happen. This is about being in the flow of the Whitewater River rather than standing as a spectator on the bank, dipping our toes in. Let me tell you about something which happened the day I spoke on the economy of grace here 11 years ago. It was October 2008, an historic month, as figures had just been released that showed our economy was plummeting into recession. Just before we started the church 23 years ago, there were no people and no money. So this decision cost nothing to make. But we believed God invited us to pledge to give or spend 20% of all the money which came in to that which didn't directly benefit us as a church, essentially the poor and other churches and mission. And to do that until God asked us to increase it. So that's been our pledge before God. It would never be reduced from 20%, but a day may come when we sensed him prompting us to increase it. So Debbie was walking to church on that morning when I did the first of the two-part series, knowing I was teaching on giving, but not knowing what I was going to actually say. And as she was praying and walking, she sensed what might have been a prompting from the Lord to consider increasing the percentage our church sets apart to be given away or spent on things which benefit those outside our church. Then she arrives in church. As she's listening to me speak, she hears me share about our own personal experience of giving when we were financially strapped, when we thought, I don't know how we're going to make it, let's give more away. And she wondered whether as a church we should do the same as we faced the potential financial challenges, which looked pretty massive at the time as we headed into this recession. So as we drove from church, she told me, and immediately I resonated with this being the Lord. It was really, really bad timing from a human point of view. It wasn't like we had any slack in the budget at all um, as we were facing the, this impending recession. But we just sensed the Lord say, trust me. And so as we drove, we agreed that we should increase the percentage from 20% to 22%. A decision which doesn't sound like much, but in, immediately would cost us an extra £30,000 a year, just that 2% extra. As many of you will know, the Lord does sometimes speak to me personally through something in the natural. Something catches my eye and I pray, is this the Lord speaking? Sometimes it is. And I believe the Lord spoke right then and there in the most amazing way. As we talked, I noticed the number plate of the car immediately in front of us. And the letters in it would mean nothing to anyone else. But I recognized them immediately because I had abbreviated the name of this two-part series and this pair of talks were called Giving the Overflow of Grace. And in the couple of weeks leading up to the talk, I put chunks of time in my diary for preparation with the abbreviation of G for giving and then T-O-O-G, the overflow of grace. 
Here's the number plate with the numbers blurred out. T-O-O-G. Coincidence? How many number plates have you ever seen in your life which spell the overflow of grace? And there it was, the car in front of us, as we were discussing whether the Lord was speaking to us. And so, in obedience, we talked to the trustees the next day who agreed that as a church we should respond to what seemed to be the Lord's clear prompting. And we introduced that new percentage shortly after that, applying it to all of the church's income and to every building gift which came in after that point, new building gifts after that time. And we've done a number of uh, building expansions since then, and each time it's been 22% at least. And all glory to God, by his grace, the church finished that financial year not only affording everything we needed, but actually being able to save tens of thousands of pounds towards some capital expenditure as well. We made it through the years of our nation's financial crisis, able to afford what we believe God called us to do and being able to afford that extra 2%. Now, since then, 11 years, that 2% has accumulated to a figure. On regular giving, on building projects, it has now added up to a figure which just last month crossed half a million pounds. That's just the 2%. That's in addition to the 20%. So we've been able to invest 22% in things which benefit those outside our church. And in coming years, of course, that will, of course, amount to much more. I tell you that story to illustrate this extraordinary economy of grace, which we as a people have tapped into. It really is a part of our story as a church. As members of this church, I'm encouraging you to review how you're doing in this economy of grace, of receiving and giving? Are you excelling in this grace of giving? Some of you are already giving generously to the church and to people in need beyond that. Uh, others of you know that the Lord might be prompting you to look again at your giving, perhaps in light of your income, or when did you last review it? Some of you have been perhaps giving to the church, perhaps sporadically through the offering basket, and you might want to be more intentional, actually in planning your giving, by starting a standing order. The writer of a paper I read from the Liverpool Diocese wrote this, planned giving, planned giving is about a conscious decision to be caught up in the overflow of God's grace. A conscious decision to be caught up in it. Often when God's word is opened up to us, as it has been in these last two talks, we resonate with it and we think to ourselves, yes, I want to get my giving sorted out. But time passes and we never get around to acting on that intention. We might plan to plan our giving, but following through on that plan really is another matter. And Paul addressed the Corinthian church on this very same thing. They'd responded with eager willingness to the initial idea of the offering, but they'd waned before they put it into action. And so the forms which are on seats around the room are not there to pressurize anyone. They're there because many of you today want to make a change and having a giving form will help you plan your giving. So if you want to fill one in, uh, you can do so today. Pop it in one of the boxes by the doors. If you'd rather, please take it home. Think about it. Pray about it. What could I cheerfully give? What, what are you asking of me, Lord? Or you can uh, start or change a standing order online with your bank and the church's bank details are in the form. If you do that online, it's really helpful just to let the finance department know. Just email giving at trentvineyard.org. 
And details of other ways you can give, you can find on the website, or you can go straight to this link, trentvineyard.org forward slash give, where you'll find a link to set up a standing order online or give via church suite, and also you'll find our bank details. I would encourage you to review your giving and take action this week if possible. If the form or the decision gets buried under a pile of papers or forgotten, you may never get around to it. And so as we conclude this two-part series, we're left with the invitation to allow the abundant grace of God, which is continually pouring into our lives, to liberally overflow, perhaps to an extent we had not previously considered. Shall we stand?